Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask that you bless us as we look at your word and that you guide and show us what you'd have us to see. And just thank you for how much you love us, that you gave us your word so that we could get to know you and you give us the opportunity to study and the Holy Spirit to show us what it means. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 105. We're going to read the whole thing and then we'll start where we left off. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory you in his holy name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and his judgments of his mouth. O you seed of Abraham, his servant, you sons of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made unto Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law unto Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto you will I give the land of Canaan then the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land, and he brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for, for a servant, whose feet they hurt with feathers and and he was laid in iron until the time that his, his word came and the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him and even the ruler of the people and let him go free. He made him lord over the house and ruler over all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people and deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen and he showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. And he sent darkness and made it dark and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came diverse sorts of flies, lice in their coast. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines and their fig trees and broke their trees of their coast. He spoke, and the locusts came, and the caterpillars that without number, and did eat up all the herbs of their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. And he brought them forth also with silver and gold, that there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of him fell upon them. He spread a cloud of covering and a fire to give light in the night. And people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with, bread, with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, that they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe this statutes and keep his law. Praise you the Lord. How would you like to be singing this? This is a history lesson, and this was a song that they sang in church. Yeah, it's a long song, yes. And we left off on between verses 4 and 5, so we're going to start at verse 5 here. 
But this is a long history lesson, and you know, when we get to some of the history, we're just going to kind of flip back a little bit and go cover this. So, verse 5, Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and his judgments of his mouth. O you seed of Abraham, his servant, and you children of Isaac, his, uh, Jacob, his chosen. This is what God keeps telling us over and over. Remember his marvelous works. And this is something we do need to keep in mind. And this is an imperative. It is a command. Remember what he has done. How often do we forget what God has done in our life? It's very easy when things seem to be all going wrong to forget what God has done. And we do this all the time. In many ways, we'll live in the past on all the things that are bad that's happened to us, but we keep forgetting the good things that God does for us as a general rule. We need to keep in remembrance. And God keeps telling us, remember, remember, remember. And in other places, he says, set up the landmarks and remember. When the children of Israel came across the Jordan River, he said, grab a rock out of there, make the big pile. And he didn't mean these little tiny things. He made big rocks, make a pile of rocks. And the pile of rocks was such that he says, when your children shall see this pile of rocks, and asked you, what is it there? So there was something special about what they did to these rocks to make them a memorial. It wasn't just a, you know, here's 12 rocks. <laughs> you know, it was something they did, whether they glued them together or made some kind of monument out of them. It was one that was going to stand up against time. That the children would see it and go, what is that pile of rocks over there? Kind of like what we feel when we drive around here and we see piles of rocks all over the place. What are these piles of rocks over? You know, and come to find out they're just decorative, decorative stuff. But... You know, but we look at this and he says, remember, and it's a command to remember his marvelous works or his miracles. Do you, have you ever thought about what has God done in your life that's miraculous? Hopefully he's done things for you that's miraculous. I've seen things that are miraculous. He brought me into this world. <laughs> he brought us <laughs> But you know, some of the simple things that I've seen, even in our church, is some of the times when we have our monthly dinner and there's not a lot of food and a lot of people and yet everybody gets full. Yeah. I'm absolutely sure that God has done a miraculous work up there to increase the food or decrease people's appetite, whichever it took to do it. But you realize that even though it's a small miracle, it is a miracle. I have prayed for people that have gotten healed, miraculously healed. And it's amazing. I was a participant in a prayer with, for one man who was on the heart transplant list, and he was, he was up close to the top of the list. And he wanted prayer and that Sunday after the prayer on the Saturday, he was running around the church happy that he was not having any problems with his heart, and the doctors took him off the heart transplant list. God still does miracles, and we need to keep track of those and remember those so that when we end up in those hard times, we go, okay, God has done this, he has done this, he has done this, he has been faithful. But maybe that's two miracles because a miracle for him, and maybe it's a miracle to show the doctor that God can do for oh. It's quite possible. I don't, I'm not going to, you know, the result of the miracle, the result of a real miracle is that God gets glorified. And this is the whole thing. If we will glorify God, we will see more miracles because he's going to get the glory. And he's not going to do things if we, if we try to get the glory or we don't recognize that he is the one that's performing the miracles. Yeah. And, and it's very important for us to get in there. And this, we need to look at the things he's doing in our life as well because they build, they build our faith, but they also build others' faiths up. 
It's one thing to look back at the Bible, and we said this over and over again. It's one thing to look at the Bible and say, look at all these things that God did. But you know, the average person reading them in the Bible says, well, yeah, they, he's done that you know, back then, but what's he doing lately? You know, what, what is God doing lately? Because that's human nature. Yeah. You know, what, what have you done for me lately? You know, you've done a great job in, my, in the workplace you know, last year, but what have you done for me this year? Uh, you know, you've been great for the family you know, in the past, but what are you doing to help the family this year? You know, in today, that's the way we think as human beings. So it's very important for us to share what God is still doing with one another. You know how I get all the big boo-boos of everything? This big one? Well, I've been praying now, and, it's, and he's been answering. I said, God, please help me not be damaged my body anymore. I have run into about three things, and it hasn't did what it usually does. And I really believe that. I could put a shield around me. Please, please. Yeah. But this whole idea of, he says, remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and his judgments of his mouth. God is still doing great things. And we're looking through the Psalms and we're seeing this reminder, God has done this, God has done this, God has done this. In the New Testament, they keep referring back to the Old Testament and say, this is what God has done. And the whole point of this is, is they were showing what God is doing, it's still what he has done in the past and still doing. We in our day can look back to the Old Testament and the New Testament and say God did this, he did this, and he is still doing his work. Okay? He has not ended. He has not stopped doing miracles. He has not stopped having the flow of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. It still continues, and we need to remember that he's still the same God. And this is what we're being exhorted to do and actually commanded to do. Remember. Remember what he has done. And this is what this whole psalm is going to be about is he's refreshing what God has done for the nation of Israel. We need to keep this in mind. What has God done to protect, this, protect his church? You know, this is an amazing thing, and one of the things I challenge Christians is we need to learn church history. What has God done for his church? It's an amazing thing when people do not understand what's going on in the church because they don't know what's gone on in the church. And the, the old statement, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it is true even in the church we keep repeating the same mistakes in the church that have already been passed on many times over again and we need to keep in this and this is something i may end up doing some kind of church history class because i think it's important enough that we learn church history the errors and the and the have been going around over and over and over again throughout the centuries and we need to be able to say Enough is enough, actually. We read the, old te the New Testament, and it's pretty amazing. And most people have this opinion that the New Testament church, you know, the days of the early church were perfect. Well, all you've got to do is read Galatians, uh, Corinthians. <laughs> Paul was writing letters to correct things that were going wrong in these churches that were supposedly the first century churches that were perfect. And you know what? They're the same errors that we still have today. We have not learned our lessons in most of these errors. We still have the same things going on in our churches. We still have the same problems going on in our churches. Satan is not new in his attacks. He just waits for people to forget the answers and attacks them again with the same exact thing. All the false religions are based on the same principles. Do more good than bad and you're going to be okay or that there is no God completely. One or the other is his argument. You know, if, you, if he can get you to not accept God, any God at all, that's fine by him, or if he can get you stuck in works. Either one is okay with Satan because it takes you away from God. 
and we see people doing the same thing all the time. And even amongst Christians, we tend to fit into this. We start knowing we're saved by grace, and then we start drifting into works. Why? Because we're getting sanctified, we're trying to work ourselves in, and then we start thinking the works are important, more important than they are. Not because they're worthless, but because somehow we start thinking they're, they're, they have great value. You know, look at me, I'm spiritual. I'm, I've eliminated so many things in my life and I'm doing so many good things. That is not where we need to go because it's all by grace. And God is doing great things to lift us up and be an example to others, but it's not for our glory, it's for his glory. Everything has to be for his glory. And we need to keep that in mind. We build his church for his glory. We build our, we build our walk with him for his glory so that Christ is lifted up. Why? He's lifted up because of how much he's changed me. Then people go, well, what are you doing in life? God has changed me. Isn't it wonderful how God has changed me? Look at all the things he's doing. And we lift him up. And it's very important that he always is lifted up. Because he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It doesn't say that if each one of us is lifted up, he'll, we'll draw them unto, unto him. He needs to be lifted up in our life. And this is part of what he's saying. Remember, remember. The more we remember what God has done for us, the more we will lift him up because he will get the glory. If somehow I start thinking about, wow, look how wonderful I'm being blessed in this, all because I'm so good. <laughs> yeah, you get there and you're in trouble. Christ is not lifted up in that mentality. Remember what God has done. The Jews had a problem. They kept forgetting what God has done, even though they kept being reminded, even in their events, Passover and Yom Kippur and all these other events that lifted God up, they kept getting into that, look what we have done. We are so important. We are God's chosen. We are special. And they quit lifting God up in many cases. And God's saying, I need to be lifted up. Remember what I have done. And then he says, O you seed of Abraham, his servant, and you children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. It says, God is our, the Lord is our God. His judgments are in all the earth. It is amazing when you think about this. All the earth has a fundamental understanding of God's rules. It's the conscience, very conscience he puts into us. Man is, not, is with no excuse. They know when things are wrong. Now, they may, over years, harden their heart and sear their conscience. But when they are young and growing up, they know right from wrong. We do. We know right from wrong. Even as younger adults, we usually know right from wrong. Now, we can get to where we just keep doing something wrong all the time and, and sear it so we no longer recognize it as being wrong. But we, at some point in our life, knew right and wrong. Just internally, God put it in us. God says his rules, his judgments are all over, are everywhere. And this is amazing because it's interesting when missionaries have gone to some of these, some of these places in the middle of the nowhere, you know, amongst headhorners, they would always find somebody who did not participate in the cannibalism and everything because they knew that it was wrong and would not participate. Okay, just because they knew it was wrong and they were kind of the oddball of the group and they were very, usually very easily entreated by the missionaries because they already understood that there was right and wrong. We need to look. There's right and wrong, and people know it and are soft and tender to God because they keep that heart and trying to do the best they can even though they know they, they can't fulfill it. And he says, my judgments are everywhere in all the earth. 
And then it goes, he has remembered his covenant forever. God has made covenants with man. And we talked about that a couple weeks. It started with the Garden of Eden and the covenant that he made with man, that he wasn't going to destroy them completely and that there would be a savior to come. He destroyed the world in, by flood and he made the covenant with Noah and the rest of the world. <laughs> we call it the Noahic, but it was really with the world, not to destroy the world again by flood. He came to Abraham and said, I'm, I've chosen you and I'm going to give you this land and your descendants will be as the stars and the dust of the, of the, and the, and the sands of the, of, the, of the place. And he's in the middle of a desert, so there's a lot of sand. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to count the sand. People have tried to count the stars. I don't know if anybody's ever tried to count the sand. Uh, that would be a pretty big job. I'm sure somebody, somebody somewhere has tried to figure out how much sand there is in a cubic inch of, inch of sand and then, and then mathematically tried to figure out how much, how much sand there is in the world. I, I'd hate to see that number <laughs> written out somewhere, but I'm sure somebody somewhere has tried to figure it out. I can't even imagine trying to count the... Count the grains of sand in a, cube, in a cup or a cube, yeah. an inch cube or something. But somebody's probably done it somewhere. But people have tried counting the stars for, for generations. You know, and it's, before telescopes, they counted the stars. And then, uh, and then somebody said there were, they counted too many. And then another person said there wasn't enough. And, and now that we have the Hubble telescope, we focus in on someplace and find out there's more stars than we can ever count because they, they leave it there for long enough and it just turns into a great big white, white, uh, white picture because there's so many stars in that, each area to, to, that they can't even count it using that. So God picks something when he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you something that basically nobody can count. You're going to have more people than... God knows the number because he knows how much sand there is in this world. He knows how, much, how many stars are out there, and he's named all the stars already. So he knows all of that. He knows where that limit is. As far as humans are concerned, it is definitely an infinite number. Now, it is finite. We know that the universe is finite. As far as we're concerned, we can't count them because we can't even count the stars in our own galaxy, much less the other galaxies that we see. Uh, and those galaxies are so far away we can't even begin to count their stars. We're just assuming they're, they have about as many stars as we have. There's always going to be things for us to learn with God. There's always going to be something that we learn deeper. Well, yeah, this whole, this whole psalm is a, is, a, is a history lesson from Exodus. Yeah, this is, this is Exodus. This is the book of Exodus and song, which we're going to refer back to Exodus on a few places where we're going to show you where it, where it refers to their story. The, the book of Psalms was... The hymnal for the Jews. Now, they probably had many other songs that weren't in here, but this was a hymnal for the Jewish people, and they sang these songs when they went in the, in the temple. And they could not stop. There were always someone When they that. built the temple, David set it up that they, they had a tribe that was responsible for music. But he says, God remembers his covenant. You know, God makes promises, and he always will keep his covenant. He told Abraham his people were going to get the land that he walked in. Now it took him a few, few hundred years before it finally happened, but you know, 430 years from the, from the birth of Isaac before they finally got the land. But God keeps his promise. He is going to come back and settle on this world and have a millennial kingdom. It's been a few thousand years since that, that the call has been made, but it will happen. 
we know that God will remember his covenant and will keep his covenants always. And he says, he made it with Abraham and he made it with Isaac. And I love this in verse 6. His, the children of Jacob, his chosen. God chooses who he's going to work with. And this is kind of an interesting thing. This takes us back into this whole dilemma of is it all God's choice or do I have a choice? And the answer is yes. I have a choice and, God, and God's going to do what he wants. <laughs> and God is chosen. And, and as most people say, if you choose God, then he has chosen, then you were one of the chosen. If you didn't choose him, then you were one of the not chosen. And whether that is God that made it happen or you that made it happen really doesn't matter because it is what it is and, you know, and, you're, and you were chosen. Now, how God puts all that together, I'll be the first one to tell you, I have no idea. The only thing is that I know that it's true. He chooses and he gets his way. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He will get his way. Now, we get to cooperate by choosing him. Now, what happens if I wanted to choose him, but, you know, but he hasn't chosen me? It won't happen. Okay? If he's chosen me, I will choose him. If I choose him, I was chosen. And we don't understand how all that works, and I never will understand how that works. Maybe he'll tell us in heaven. Maybe we won't care when we get to heaven, because we're for there, we're there, and we're not going to care. At that time, we'll realize we were chosen and that we chose him, and it won't matter. But, you know, it's very hard for some people. I take great comfort in that I have a God who is sovereign of the, in this world and that nothing will happen to me that he has not planned and authorized. No matter what anybody else chooses to do that might affect me, God knew that it was going to happen and has got a plan for it. And I take great comfort in that. I would not want a God that doesn't know what's going to happen and has no control over keeping bad things from happening to me because it wouldn't be a very good God. That would be such a weak God to be worshiping. Uh, to say, well, my God is strong, and, uh, but he can't stop anything bad from happening to me if, it, if he didn't want it to happen. Now, that brings us into predestination again. You know, it's, he already knows what's going to happen and has made his plan. We have to deal with that issue on it, and, but it's the predestination that gives me my comfort. Now, has he predestined somebody to hell? I don't think so. He knows their decision, he knows, he knows what they're going to do, and it is, says he wants everybody saved, but he doesn't want it to the point where he's going to make them get saved. He did predestine the devil, did he not? I don't believe that either. I believe the devil made his choice. Um, now, he knew what the choice was going to be, and he knew, but because of the choice that the devil made, hell was prepared and his angels were taken into place. So this gets us into a place where this is why predestination is a hard thing for people to even contemplate. But the Bible talks about predestination, so we cannot just throw it away. It's hard. It is very hard to contemplate. If God had wanted to make things happen, he could have made things happen. He could have made us robots that do just what we're programmed to do. But that's not what he wanted. To have the love of somebody who has to love you is not love. And God wanted his creation to love him, which means he had to open himself up to the idea that some would choose not to love him. Or in the case of our sinful nature, the many who would choose not to love him, the majority that would choose not to love him. And it's going to hurt, his, it's going to be heartbreak to him to give them what they asked for, which is hell, because they rejected him. Uh, he, but he also understands because he's outside of time. 
And we want to be careful because a lot of times people will say, well, God knew what we were going to do and that's what he made his decision on. And then you don't have a sovereign God. You have a God responding to what he already knows and he's no longer sovereign. Or they think like he knew what we were going to do. Why didn't he change it or stop it? He didn't want robots. He could have created a whole bunch of robots. He's looking for people that have true love toward him. Because he could have created robots. I mean, he, he's perfectly capable of saying, okay, this is what you were created for. You're created to do what I want you to do. Then you would really have a predestination thing issue of him saying, creating things to go to hell. He wants to stop it. He will put roadblocks in our way, even in the way of the lost, to not make the wrong decisions. If you want to get something, to do something wrong, you're going to do something wrong. And if you do it often enough, God will just let your heart be hardened and he will stop putting the roadblocks in front of you. But he has this covenant that he has made with people. He has promised that he would send a savior. And he's provided that Savior. And that Savior is available to anybody who wants him. And the truth of even the Savior is out there in all the world. Now, it, the story has been butchered over the years and, and manipulated and changed over the years, but the story is still out there that we need God. So then he knew all along that it took me this many years to focus on him. Yep. Yeah, and he didn't give up. But it is still great patience from him as we make wrong decisions over and over and over again. Even as Christians that we make wrong decisions over and over and over again, we learn something and forget it. We learn something and forget it before we finally remember it and say, oh, this is important. I need to remember it. God's patience is so wonderful. And he knows how many times that people are going to reject him. And how many times does God put the offer of salvation in front of people over and over again? How many times did God put the offer of salvation in front of your life before you finally responded to it in many cases? I know even though I got saved at a young age, I had the go I'm sure I had the gospel presented to me on multiple occasions before I finally heard it. And I've told you, I've heard many people give the testimony and they'll go, and I finally heard the God's message and I responded. For the first time I heard his message. It's really funny when you hear that from somebody that you know you gave the gospel to several times before they got saved. But at the same time, they're really truthful in their stand. The first time they actually heard it was the day that they responded. Because many times we're fairly capable of hearing something and not hearing it. And I know that for a fact, even in, in churches that I've sat in, when I know that I've sat in and I've heard a message before and all of a sudden it clicks. And I respond to the message that I've heard and then I go back and I listen to tapes from previous, previous years or something and going, oh, I had heard that message before. But we get to this place where it is so easy to kind of ignore what God's saying until just the right time. And as we find, as we read through the Bible, how many times have you read a chapter that you've read many times before and all of a sudden some new point comes out of that chapter yeah, and I kind of jokingly say, I've asked God, and I'm really joking with God. I'm going, God, when did you add that verse to this chapter? It's never been here before. I know it's been there, but I also realize that now is the time to understand it. And it's just kind of a joke that I've had with God at times. God, you've added words to my Bible. You've added verses to my Bible. I've never seen this before. But, you know, it is true, though. We don't hear things until we're ready to respond to what it is, even whether it's reading the scriptures, listening to a pastor. There's going to be a time when it becomes real. And when it's being spoken, it's real for somebody out there. Somewhere needs to hear it. And it may be not be your time for it to be heard yet. But you know, the other thing that really amazes me is when, tell me, when people come up to me and, Pastor, you said this, you know, in, this in your message the other day. 
And I'm thinking, I go, did I really say that? I don't remember <laughs> saying that. I don't know where you heard that from. But I've talked to other pastors, and all the pastors have said the same thing. This is something that people say to them all the time. You said this in the message that day, and the pastors were scratching their heads and maybe even reviewing what they said on a tape if it's taped and still not hearing it. But the Holy Spirit spoke to somebody in a totally unique way sometimes. I think like what you said a while ago, he said sometimes when I read a scripture or something, it is exactly what you needed to hear or what you have a problem of. It's amazing because God is real and his word is alive and he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and he'll trigger it just at the right time. And that's one way he shows it. This word is powerful. His word is powerful. It is alive. It really is a living book as far as it goes because it is covers anything you need to know. And when you start learning it, the great thing is the more you learn it, the more you start tying things together and the more things come out of it because you're tying it together with other places because it is one book. 66 books that are all one. One author connecting everything together and bringing things out and the more, and I've, I've shared with you, I've read it so many times, it's hard for me just to read a chapter without going all over the Bible anymore. Well, that was in this book. Yeah, let me, let me get more detail from it. And I'm flipping back and forth and connecting things together. And the more you do that, the more you find that it's connected. And the more truth you get out as you connect more and more verses together so that it becomes a uh, symbiotic relationship in one sense because it gives you each verse builds upon the other and joins up with each other. What's neat, a lot of times the verses is repeated, repeated, but different. God tends to do that a lot. Sometimes I think that's the way I'm, when I'm teaching when the same topic comes up over and over in the different, yeah. in the different books that we're studying. But you know, that's a wonderful thing. God has shown his mercy through us by repeating himself so many times in the word of God. If you can't get it in, in Exodus, you might get it in Deuteronomy. And if you didn't get it in Deuteronomy, you might get it in 1 Samuel. If you didn't get it there, you might find it in Ecclesiastes. If you didn't find it there, you'll find it in, you'll find it in Jeremiah. If you didn't find it there, he'll give you it in, in Matthew. If you didn't find it there, he'll give you it in, in Galatians. If you didn't find it there, he'll give you it in Revelation. I mean, <laughs> he repeats himself so much. And I've told people, I don't have an imagination, so it's easy for me not to get wrapped up in it. <laughs> I, I really don't. I don't have much imagination at all. I'm very concrete. What God says is what it. It's easy for me to see Paul on ships, and it's easy for me to see David pick up rocks. I can understand that one, but I don't see pictures when I do that. This is why I have trouble with the book of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is so picturesque in his language that it. I just can't imagine what he's, what, he's, what he's speaking about. When I read Revelation and it talks about the new, the new heaven coming down and with all these glory of God, I'm going, okay, it sounds interesting, but I just, I'm a very concrete person. It's like, this is what it says, this is what it is, and I don't, I don't have these pictures. But it's not that anybody else is wrong and that I'm right and, or that I'm wrong and, and they're right. It is just who I am. You know, when people make fun of Thomas, I would be Thomas. If I was the disciple, I would have been Thomas. I'm concrete. I watched Jesus die. And I don't know what you guys have been smoking. You know, you, he was in the grave. He must still be there. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. But I would have been Thomas. I would have been that kind of person. Like, I'm only in my mid-50. There's still a chance that he might give me that gift. But, but I'm, not looking for, I'm not looking for it. So it's, I, I like concrete things. That's one of the reasons I do get into the genealogies, because it's very concrete. And, and I see the connections that, that the numbers give me. So it's uh, I love numbers. I always have loved numbers. Uh, that's why I was in mathematics, uh, very, very good with mathematics. I, I love numbers. They're, co they're concrete. They're solid. They're, does that make anybody with an imagination wrong? It just means they're different. You know, and, I, and people with imaginations may think that I'm wrong because you know, I'm different. But it's, 
You know, it's not a right or wrong issue, it's just the way we think and we all need each other. To have somebody be able to paint a picture with words is important. You know, I can paint the pictures with words, I just can't see what it is that other people see when I give those words. When I talk about the death of Jesus Christ and, and the crucifixion, I can paint the story so well that those with imaginations will be grin gringing at the words that I will, will use to paint because I know how to use words. I just don't see the words the way people with imagination see the words. I just know, to me, I know what it involves and I don't see what it is. I just know intellectually what it involves. <laughs> right, verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And this is kind of a, he doesn't literally mean a thousand generations as we can figure out, but he's literally saying for a very long time. A thousand generations would probably be somewhere around, the, around, the, around 4,000 to 8,000. If it's 8,000, it would be possibly literal. But a generation in the Bible pretty much used to be considered 40 years in most cases, which is why a lot of people believe that in 1988 that Jesus would come because he said, this generation shall not pass after Israel was <laughs> brought into their land. So a lot of people in 1988, if you've been a Christian long enough, in 1988, it was a big deal. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming because this is year 40 since Israel went back into their land and Israel's still a state and, and Jesus didn't come. I've been a Christian long enough that I've seen these little things come and go where people have said, this is what it's got to mean. And this is one of the reasons I, I tend to be not dogmatic about anything that's predictive because I have seen it come and go where people have been dogmatic. It had to mean these things and then they have and they've missed it and they're and, they, and then they've disappointed and it's and some Christians have fallen away or you know some people have rejected Christ because of the the failed prophecies and stuff and we want to be very careful with that but God will remember his covenant forever that's what the first half says and again we've got the parallel here so for a thousand generations is referring back to forever so basically he's saying it's just a a wordplay saying, I'm going to remember it a thousand generations. You guys think a thousand generations is, is a big number? I'm going to remember it. <laughs> I'm going to remember my promise to you. And it says, the covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because the covenant he made with Abraham, then he made the oath with Isaac or, or the same thing. He made the same covenant with Isaac. And then this verse 10 is kind of interesting because it's the same person. Jacob and Israel are the same person. All right. He confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Could he have meant Israel to come the company of people? Probably not in this case because he's referring to the founding. He, this is play on the play, uh, the play on uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And Jacob and Israel are the same, same individual. But again, poetry. This is poetry. And we've got to keep in mind, and I bring this up oftentimes in Psalms, the Psalms are poetry, but they're Jewish poetry, so we're not looking for rhyme. Even in the Hebrew, we're not looking for rhyme. In the Hebrew, they did double sentences for poetry, and they either were, said the same thing, or they said opposites and contrasted with each other. So he would repeat, just like he did in, in verse 10, the covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Okay, so he's saying, I made, a, I made a covenant and I made it with both these people. So he's basically saying the same thing and he did the same thing in verse 10. And way back when we started this uh, Psalms, I gave you the handout sheet that talked about, about Hebrew poetry. And if you need that, let me know and we'll get it re back out to people again. 
but we talked about the definite defining of Hebrew poetry so that you could help understand as you're reading Psalms Hebrew poetry. I remember you saying that. The other thorn that they use, and we still use it today, is and when we get to Psalm 119, we'll find that this is is the way they do, the way they start every every letter in the verse starts with a particular letter. And just like we can do in English, we go A, B, C, D, E, and we, we would write a poem and start the first one, would, the first line would start with A, and then would B, and then with C. They did that a lot in, in Jewish poetry. Now at Psalm 119, it has eight verses per letter. Every, and so the first eight verses in Psalm 119 in Hebrew would all start with the letter Aleph, or A, we would call it A. And then the second set would be with Beth, which would be all beginning with the letter B and all the way through the, the, the Hebrew alphabet. But we wouldn't see that in the English. We're not going to see it at all in the English translation. In most of the English translations, if you, you will see where they might put the Aleph. In, in my version, it says Aleph, and then it goes eight verses, and then it says Beth, eight verses. Basically showing you that it should have been that way. But our English words don't necessarily translate the same. And then he says it's an everlasting covenant. God's covenants are everlasting. Now, he has two different covenants. And remember, we talked about covenants several weeks ago on Sunday morning. He has covenants that are unconditional, such as the Noadic covenant. He will not, no matter what man does, flood the whole earth again. Period. End of story. Not going to happen. Now, we're told in Peter that he will destroy the world by fire at the end. And that would be before he starts the new heaven and earth. He's going to destroy everything. Mm -hmm. And by fire or just by letting all the atoms disintegrate, by letting, letting go of them and letting them all disintegrate and starting all over. Or the covenant to Abraham, unconditional. God, I will bless you. I will give you this land. It doesn't matter what your descendants do or don't do. You're going to get the land. Or it could be the Mosaic covenant, which was conditional. If you do these things, then I will do these things. And if you don't do these things, then I will do these things. A typical covenant that is out there with conditions placed on it. But a lot of God's covenants are unconditional. Salvation is an unconditional covenant with God as long as we do our part and accept the gift. But we accept that gift and it's unconditional at that point. He accepts us and we are his child forever. I love it. He gives us everlasting life or eternal life. How anybody believes you can lose your eternal life, I don't know, because then it wouldn't be eternal life. If somehow I could lose it, it's not eternal. It is not everlasting. Well, if you believe that, you might as well just throw You might as well throw the book away. Because if you can lose something that is eternal, then you've got a problem because there's issues that you have to deal with. This is why you've got to believe the Bible for what it says and not try to read into this all, all the problems. Now, is everybody who thinks they're saved saved? Absolutely not. Jesus makes that very clear. Because he says many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So this is something we need to be aware of. In many ways, those who say you can lose your salvation and those of us who say that you can't lose your salvation actually say the same thing. We would say you weren't saved in the first place. They say you lost it. And I'll say you can't lose something that you never had. We, we end up with that whole par portion. There are churches that people get, the same people get saved every week. And then he goes, verse 11, saying the covenant, saying unto you, I will give you the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. So he, God's saying, the covenant I gave you is that you are going to get the promised land. And that's the one he's keying in on. He's not keying in on all the other promises that were part of that. 
but that he would bless all nations through Abraham, through the birth of Jesus Christ. Wonderful, wonderful thing. And then in verse 12 it says, When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it. Now when he gave the promise to Abraham, they were very few in number. There were two of them. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> you want to talk about having few? <laughs> That's a few. <laughs> okay. He continued the promise when there were only four. <laughs> Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. <laughs> then he gives it to Jacob. Now Jacob gets a few more people. <laughs> He ends up with four wives and 13 kids. <laughs> and when they go into Egypt, there are 70 people in the, in the family when they're in Egypt. So you want to talk about few people. And that was the whole of Israel. That was the entire nation of Israel when they went into Egypt. 70 people. All you got to do is go back to Genesis to find that, to read that if you want. It's in Genesis. I'm sure that seemed like a lot. Well, to him, compared to what this family's been, that was a pretty good-sized clan. Uh, but it, it really wasn't that big because they went, they're now in Egypt. Egypt was the ruling empire of, their, of that day. Very populated, very ruling. They owned all the Middle East during that period of time as vassal states. They were part of Egypt. This is something that people don't understand is when Abraham was walking in the Promised Land, there were other nations there, yes, other peoples there. But they were part of the Egyptian kingdom, even at that time. They paid their taxes, and they were part of the... If you look in the old history books, Egypt was huge. Okay? Now, they didn't directly rule most of it, but they controlled, and every place was part of Egypt. Theoretically, it was the Egyptian empire. But it was very much like the Babylonian empire. They ran everything from the Mediterranean all the way to India, but they didn't... Each group had their own little things going on. They paid their taxes. They were citizens of Babylon, but it was kind of like all these different states everywhere. The same thing during Abraham's walk. He was walking in Egypt, and God's saying, this is your land. <laughs> everywhere you put your foot is yours. Abraham put his foot in Egypt. Remember, he, Pharaoh took Sarah into his concubines at the time, and God said, you're... Gave him the dream that you're to give him back. Said the same thing with Abimelech. You know, and in Abimelech, he was even stronger. You're a dead man. <laughs> that was pretty strong language, especially when Abraham lied to him. And God says, you're a dead man. And he's like, what for? If you remember the story back there, it's like, what for? He goes, because you have another man's wife. He told me he wasn't. So he, then, but he did the same thing. You know, Abraham was a really slow learner. When we talk about people learning slow, Abraham really learned slow. Isaac wasn't any better. He did the same problems his dad did. But he says, you were very few in number when God gave you this promise. God did not give them the promise because they were the strongest, the most numerous. Nothing special about him, you know, other than the fact that he was seeking after God in some way, shape, or form. He was still a sinner. He still made mistakes. And yet God said, I've chosen you. I have chosen you. Very similar to Noah. He found grace in God's eyes because he was trying to follow God in whatever format it was he was following him in. But yet we saw after the flood, he got drunk and he did something, whatever it was he, that he did was stupid and, and, and uh, Ham was making fun of him for, for having done it. 
and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the Sunday morning. Yeah, you know, the yeah. nakedness and whatever else is involved in that nakedness. Yes, but we see that even when God chooses somebody, it's not because they are perfect, which is good news for us as his followers because we, we choose him, but we can't choose him unless he first chooses us and all the other stuff that goes involved in that. And he uses us because he chooses us. And we don't have to be perfect to be used. And that is good news for all of us because none of us is perfect. Because if we had to be perfect to be used by God, I know I would be in trouble. I'd be, I'd be in lots of trouble because I couldn't have been used by God if that was the case. And yet, he uses us to bring himself glory. He uses us and works through us so that he gets glory. Annie? I just To them that are forgive, uh, forgiven much, they love much? Is that what you're trying to think of? <laughs> and this really is a true statement because I have seen this even in churches over the years. Individuals who get saved early in their life usually have a lot harder time loving other sinners because God has protected them from a lot of the sin in their lifetime and they fell in love with God early and they oftentimes get self-righteous and, and, and tend to not understand sin or think that they, don't, that they didn't deserve the punishment and God loved them so much. To be honest, when I'm talking to you and I know that I'm not the only one that confides in you, don't you ever sit there and think in the back seat or the front seat, how stupid could she be? Honestly, I can't no, actually, for me, what I, what I usually feel is, God, thank you for protecting me by getting me saved early in my life. But I was early, too. I feel so fortunate and blessed that God got me into his word at a very early age and really got hold of my heart and protected me from many of the things that so many people go through. But... No, it was getting into his word and studying and, and him becoming very, very real to me. Uh, and I'm very thankful for, that he did that for me. But by the same token, it makes it harder for me to empathize with people that have had problems in their life and that have struggled with things. And, I, and because I've never experienced those, those same type of problems. Now, I've got, because I recognize that all sin is sin, I, and I know that I've dealt with my own sin issues, I can say I may not know exactly where you're at, but I understand that you struggled with sin. You know, and I've shared with you, there was an issue in my life that God worked on me for six years before I finally gave in. And it hurt my family during that process of me being stubborn. So I understand sin. It may not be the same sins that everybody else goes through, but I understand sin is sin. And I understand that the struggles of getting past those sins can be difficult, if you, especially if you don't want to give it up. Or if it's part of who you are or who you think you are at that time. I understand those things. That makes me able to sympathize with people, even though I don't understand necessarily their specific sin. That most people would say, well, this is a terrible sin. You know, they might look at what I was dealing with and say, well, that wasn't such a big deal. Well, it was a huge deal because God was working out of my life. And as he was working it out of my life, it hurt the others in my family because I was so stubborn to not respond, just as if I had been an alcoholic drinking every night and wasting my money and, and all of that would have hurt my family. My sin still hurt my family and made things difficult. 
So I understand from that aspect. Now, it is wonderful when we watch and see God work. It's great. And I feel sad when I hear some people's stories and how physically they have been hurt by their sins. I don't understand that side of it because mine are all been other, other issues. But I also understand sin is sin. This is one of the things I would talk to our Celebrate Recovery guy that came up here, Steve, so many times, you know, and, and I go, it's so interesting, you know, you're saying exactly what I would say to these people, but they accept it because you've been where they are and they don't recognize that sin is sin. And until you grow and grow and mature, you don't recognize that sin is sin and that the answer for sin is still the same thing. Surrender to Jesus Christ and he'll let him crucify that area of your life and move on to the next, next sin that he's going to show you which is why it gets easier and easier the more mature you get to respond to God because you start recognizing, okay, God, I, I surrender. You crucify it, and you give me the strength to live. That's his answer for every sin. I surrender, you crucify it, and you give me the strength to live, no matter what the sin is. That's all he's asking. And when we're in the middle of the sin, we don't understand how we can surrender. And I tell people it's simple. We surrender and let God crucify it. And the answer I get back is always the same. Well, how do I surrender? You do it. The amazing thing is when you get to the other side of the surrender, you usually start kicking yourself because it was so simple and you go, why did I wait so long to do it? I give up. Here, here it's yours. <laughs> and yet we all, even when we comprehend it, we still come to the next issue in our life and we go, God, I like this too much to surrender. I can't surrender it. How do I surrender it? But it does get easier, at least in my life, it's gotten easier and easier with everything that God has, each thing God asks me to surrender, I'm starting to get better at saying, okay, God, it's yours. <laughs> Why? Because I've learned. I've gone through it enough times to be, you know, I, I, I'm a little stubborn and, and thick-headed, but I have, even I learn after a while that it's pretty easy. God's going to get his way eventually. <laughs> it's better to give up earlier <laughs> Then later, because he keeps intensifying the pressure until we finally give up. So we're, he is going to get his way with us because he's just going to keep building the pressure until we finally say, okay, God, I think, I, get, I think you've got it through my head finally that I need to surrender it, and we surrender it. He starts out very gentle. You know, Here's your message, do it and follow it. And when we start maturing... Isn't maturity, though, the point where we learn to finally just give up what we want to do for something else? Our kids, as they mature, should be learning to follow God and be obedient to the rules. The more mature we are with God, the faster we start listening to him and being obedient. Why? Probably because we've learned enough lessons the hard way that we finally go, God, you're going you're to get your way anyway. I might as well surrender. That's maturity in Christ. God, you are going to get your way. I'm just going to give up. You're my Lord. You're my master. You want me to do this? I'm going to do it. And the more we surrender, the more it becomes a pattern in our life, the easier it becomes. And for me, it's really starting to become simple because, okay, God, you, you know, you've been really gone. Uh, nothing you've asked me to give up has been harmful to me, so we're going to keep doing this. It's been harmful for me to reject it. And when he says do something and we reject it, Harm is going to come into our life as he starts giving us, turning up the heat. You know, oh, you don't want to do this? Let's make it more difficult for you. <laughs> Let's keep making it more difficult for you. And for a husband, that means your family suffers because you're the head of the family and if God's putting the heat on you, 
your family suffers. Now that I'm a pastor, I definitely want to listen to God as fast as possible because I don't want the church to suffer because of my thick-headedness. So I'm trying to be very careful. God, if you want me to stop, you know, stop something, let me know, and I will <laughs> try to do it as quick as possible. Because I don't need to see this church suffer because I'm thick-headed. <laughs> and God's done a lot of work in my life to soften that attitude with me and be less stubborn. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. I'm, gonna, I'm still going to make mistakes, but God knows how to work those out, and I start recognizing when the heat gets turned up that, okay, God, <laughs> it's time to surrender. And we need to be that type of person we've learned. What have we learned? Apply it other places. We, I just said it. Sin is sin. And sin is addictive. It doesn't matter what, what the sin is. It is. Sin itself is addictive. It doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs that you're addicted to. Sin is, has an addic addictive facet of it. You first have trouble getting into the sin, and then all of a sudden it becomes you have to have it. Flesh the flesh loves sin, after, and it gets addicted to the, the, the whatever it is about it. Somebody who steals and just has to steal more and more and more to, to, to get into the, to have that whatever thrill it is, or th stealing bigger and bigger things until they finally get caught because they've gone too far. Sin is addictive. Those who get into these sexual perversions get addictive behavior where they need more and more of it and deeper and deeper types. You know, pornography has some huge issues. They start out with benign, just naked pictures, and then they work into all these different, you know, fetishes and then all the way into the snuff films and everything where they're killing, actually killing the people and maybe even participating in those type of things. Why? Because the sin is never enough. It always wants more, no matter what the sin is. And that sin could be giving your whole self to your work. You have to do more and more and more because it's just never enough. Uh, and we want to be very careful because what is our God? Our God will demand all of us. I have no problem giving all of myself to our God, but what if your God is work, sex, entertainment, uh, you know, whatever it might be, you don't want to give yourself to that God because there's no benefit in that. And it's short-lived, <laughs> short but, it, but it also will never satisfy. The great thing about giving ourselves to God is He's just what we need to fill that void in our life. And a God-shaped hole in our life cannot be filled with anything else because God is infinitely big and He's the only one that can fill the hole He has in our life because nothing else will. And he comes in and he fills that hole and he will totally satisfy it and to totally surrender ourselves to God has great blessing. Mm -hmm. Great blessing, great joy, great peace. And I'm learning that more and more every year. Be totally surrendered to God and be totally blessed by being at faith with him. To let him be my defender, to let him be my protector, to let him be my guide, be the one that changes who I am. It's wonderful to be there. And I want to get even further into this because the one thing I know is already, even as, more, as far as I've gone into, there's still more to get into, into his understanding. Wherever you're at, there's more to learn about God and more depth and more surrender for him. Uh, Moody said the world is yet to see a, what a man can do that is totally surrendered to God. That's kind of an interesting statement. When you, especially when you think of somebody like Paul who seems to have been totally surrendered and, and made a big impact on the church. Yeah. 
Somebody like Joseph who made a big impact on protecting his family and his world in his day. What could be like if somebody was totally surrendered to God? What would we be like if we were totally surrendered to God? Completely, 100% surrendered to God. An interesting thought and a desire maybe we want to try to obtain. God, help me. Help me be surrendered to you. Who knows where God would take you? There might be somebody we're talking to to be the next Billy Graham because if they got totally surrendered and, and, and started evangelizing. Might be a D.L. Moody with the great knowledge and the, and the preaching that he did. Maybe just be somebody like George Mueller who, who ministered to the homeless and the, and the children's orphanages and, and changed the life of hundreds of children without families in a day when orphanages were kind of unheard of and were just warehouses for children. And he showed them the God's love and ministered to them. Who knows what it is that God's got in store for us if we just totally surrender to him? I'm looking forward to where this church is going in the, near, in the future as we get surrendered to God and we see people really get on fire for God. Who knows what God's got in store for this church? Maybe it'll always be just a small, people being, small group of people being trained. Maybe God's got a great, great plan for us. Well, we got a lot of people on the internet, that's true, but, but who, knows, who knows what God's truly got in store for us in this town to be ministering, and maybe not only in this town, but this valley, or even in all of Mojave, who knows what God's got for us? I don't know what it is, but as God brings us the right people in, and God brings us the people to do things, we're going to see God do things. But wouldn't it be cool if a couple of the people that heard you on the internet would come out and see you? Well, it would be fun, it would be fun. Yeah. It would be fun, you know, we heard you on the internet, we just had to come by this church, you know, it would be fun, it would be... They're very welcome, we'd love to, we'd love to see them, I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> we have not gotten any emails from anybody who's listening yet, other than when you were moving out here. Yeah. So. You didn't listen, though. You just saw the no, book. I didn't know you had it. I didn't even know. Okay. Let's go ahead and pray. We're, we're done here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, that you do keep your promises. Lord, that you are a God that loves us so much and have special plans for us and desires for us. We ask that you just guide and lead us in all that we should do. And, Lord, most importantly, help us learn to surrender to what you want us to do. In your son's name, amen. Amen.